Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. Crazy town. <laughs> I'm so tired of this shit. It's unbelievable. <laughs> it's exhausting, Nick. It's exhausting. Yes. I'm yep. so tired of it. Oh my God! Well, and it's, be... it's too much it's in too one much. week. It's way too Can't much. Can't we just talk about the Supreme Court this week? I wanted to talk about diplomats getting their brains microwaved, and we had to push <laughs> that back. It's very sad. Um, welcome back, guys. Uh, Barstool Politics. Uh, I am your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College. Not joined today by Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. He's off in Germany eating sausage by the meter. By the meter. He's yeah. on assignment for us again. He's on assignment. <laughs> um, but we are joined by our senior legal analyst, Tom Cavanaugh, which is great. <laughs> and very, very, uh, very good for this particular week. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm terrific. Great oh, to be awesome. here. Yay. Um, before we get started, usual stuff. If you guys like the podcast, have questions, comments, beer suggestions, things you want us to talk about. Uh, follow us on Twitter uh, at Barstool Paul, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Um, uh, beers that we try, uh, the Untapped app, download that on iOS and Android. We are just Barstool Politics on there. The podcast itself you can find found find on uh, SoundCloud, uh, Google Play Music, Stitcher, most major podcasting platforms. Most of you guys are on iTunes, so review us and uh, share us through there. We really appreciate it. Um, did I miss something else? No. Predict it? Yeah. You're getting there. I was getting there. Okay. <laughs> I didn't know if there was another plug that I was no, forgetting. No, you're good. Um, yeah. If you guys have been around the past few weeks, uh, we partnered with uh, the great people over at Predict It, uh, which is a pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Um, what's really great for you guys specifically is that they were nice enough to uh, provide a promotion for our listeners. So uh, when you open a new account with Predictit, uh, they will match your deposit up to $20. So make a $20 deposit. You will get $20 in free money to bet on political events. And there's lots of them over this next week <laughs> that you should be betting on. So definitely take advantage of that. Uh, all you have to do is use our promo link, uh, predictit.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20. Uh, again, that's predicted.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20. So just do that and get your free money because it's awesome. I will say we're getting a lot of good feedback from listeners uh, that are enjoying this and a having bunch fun of you guys with Predictus. Yes. Up. Yeah, which is great. Uh, and it has been really exciting with all the primaries that are playing out. And we'll talk a little bit about this op-ed that was uh, dropped in the New York Times today. It mm. may have some implication on the markets about whether Trump is going to finish his term or not. Uh, mm -hmm. So this, you know, Phil has been betting big on impeachment, so he might his, his stock may have gone up. <laughs> he won't know because he's, huh? he's in Germany, but uh, <laughs> maybe he's made a little bit of money. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, like we said, there's lots of big stuff going on, but we've got Tom here. We wanted to talk about the uh, the Kavanaugh hearings and the 
absolute clusterfuck that that's been over the past two days. Kavanaugh on Kavanaugh. I know, Kavanaugh it's great. Um, do you want to give us a little intro? Sure. So we knew the hearing for the Supreme Court nomination of Brett Kavanaugh was going to be entertaining, but I don't think anyone knew it was going to be this extraordinary. There were fireworks from the start as Democrats attempted to prevent the process from even beginning. Uh, luckily, we're joined by our senior legal analyst, Tom Kavanaugh, to break down the Kavanaugh hearing. Uh, so many interesting elements in this nomination. Tom, maybe we should start with your general reaction to the hearing and what has taken place over the last couple of days, and then we can take a deeper dive into the more fascinating aspects of his candidacy, how it's going to impact the Supreme Court, just kind of open it in conversation. So, so what strikes you? Where should we start? My initial impression is that it's a spectacle mm-hmm. and, and a, uh, frankly, a really sad and modern one. This is not how they've looked. Uh, I think this makes the Bork hearings look relatively tame uh, by comparison. It certainly looks nothing like the hearings that Sotomayor, Kagan, Breyer, uh, even Roberts mm-hmm. got, um, even Gorsuch got. Uh, and. I don't know what the future of Supreme Court nominations and advice and consent looks like in a universe like the one we are observing this week. So it's so, that bad. So this, you really think this is something? I mean, they've always been contentious and somewhat political, mm-hmm. but your sense is this is mm-hmm. this is a different different breed. Yeah. Well, the last time I was here, we talked just a little bit about uh, kind of the history of hearings, and I won't recite all of that again, other than to remind people that uh, there is no requirement for a hearing. Half of all of our Supreme Court justices have been uh, confirmed without one in round numbers. There's been 113 Supreme Court justices. 66 uh, became justices without any hearing at all. Um, The hearing starts uh, back with Justice Brandeis, probably uh, by people who were doing that for anti-Semitic reasons. Uh, Questions to the nominees, hard ones, came even much later, about 1955, John Harlan. So this is a relatively new phenomenon. And I don't know that uh, listeners know that there are no qualifications for the Supreme Court. And maybe we should say that to start with. That is, the Constitution lays out age and citizenship sorts of requirements for Congress and for the presidency. They lay out none, or it lays out none for the Supreme Court. Uh, You don't have to be a judge. You don't have to be a lawyer. You don't have to have a law degree. Uh, You can come from an entirely political uh, background. Sandra Day O'Connor would be a good example as a former governor. So what these hearings used to look for was legal competence and meaningful character. And that meant that they were usually relatively short. Uh, They've become something very different than that as we've added ideology as sort of the third leg uh, of judicial nomination analysis. I don't think anybody doubts the competence of this uh, appointee. Um, I haven't heard a thoughtful person raise an objection to his legal competence. Um, And apart from what feels to me like posturing from Democrats, I haven't heard serious objections to his character. Uh, What's really going on is objections to his political ideology. Uh, And that's a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, I note that the ABA has given him their highest uh, uh, rating, which is well qualified. 
That's an even newer part of the hearing process, the involvement of the ABA in terms of rating uh, judicial candidates. And isn't there, there's been some critique that the ABA is more left-leaning. I mean, that's, I've heard that critique mm-hmm. that say that. And so that a, yeah. and I don't know if that's true or not, but that mm-hmm. has been that they prefer liberal justices. And so when they, yeah, if they were to come Yeah, there was a out, period of time when George W. Bush uh, essentially said he wasn't interested in the ABA's evaluation of uh, Supreme Court and lower federal court nominees. Uh, I don't know whether Donald Trump is interested in it. Uh, of course, the ABA continued to rate judicial uh, candidates, whether the presidents want them to or not. Uh, I, I think that it's not unfair to say the ABA tilts a bit left. Uh, I'm not sure they disagree with sure. that. Um, but my sense is that their evaluation of judicial candidates is an even-handed uh, and um, plausible look at, at these candidates. I don't, there aren't in the legal profession people that say the ABA is tanking candidates who are competent and people of character. So I think it means something when they say uh, uh, that Kavanaugh and Gorsuch prior to him are well qualified. Uh, so uh, on these hearings, I, I just want to remind people that uh, Justice Kagan, who wasn't a justice at the time, said these were, and I just want to quote her, vapid and hollow charades. Uh, so, so there is some history here for uh, people not thinking that these hearings are meaningful. Um, I think they are, uh, and, and I think they are for at least two reasons beyond competence and character. The first is I think they give the public its best look at the most important thing a president does. And uh, I, I guess I'd say that I don't think there's any competition for first place uh, in terms of the president's uh, authority. Appointing Supreme Court justices is far and away, it seems to me, the most important thing the president does. So here's the place where people meet the justices. We don't televise Supreme Court uh, argument. Um, there's a fairly significant delay before we even post uh, audio transcript. So a lot of people, I would guess that the vast majority of Americans couldn't pick any of the nine justices out of a lineup. And, and it seems to me that the hearings are an important way for people to see and meet and uh, have some sense of who these people are. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I'm so sad about the current one, because I'm not sure that's happening. Um, the second thing is that it does reveal something about uh, the judicial thinking uh, that, that justices will uh, entertain. It turns out that most justices answer questions pretty forthrightly. There's been some interesting research on that uh, lately. Uh, the number of questions is skyrocketing, uh, but most nominees are answering questions. What they won't do is tell you how they'll rule uh, in a uh, case either that would overturn a previous precedent or an entirely new case. It's become known as the Ginsburg Rule because she was vigorous about it, and justifiably so, uh, in her nomination. Um, That doesn't stop senators from asking, and and there were repeated questions today about how he would rule on Roe versus Wade, on disability rights, uh, on all sorts of things. And as virtually every uh, uh, nominee has done prior to him, he said, I'm not going to answer those questions. So I guess I'm sad. (laughs) I'm, I'm worried. Uh, and, I, and I go back to something, Bill, I think you said the last time we met, and that is, how are we going to get nine justices consistently on the court uh, where we might not have a president and a Senate that are from the same party? Right. Mm-hmm. It's hard to do it now when they are. <clears throat> I, I was trying to think about this, and you're right, it was a spectacle yesterday. Is It strikes me that this hearing isn't about Kavanaugh. 
I mean, it's oh, it's, yeah. it's it's not it's not about how he's going to rule or his particular views. It's about the broader political game that is playing out. Right. And the Supreme Court has now emerged, and I guess I'm curious about your thoughts on this. It seems that partisans and, and political figures now see the court as the one that is going to be deciding our major issues for us. That we've we've moved away from saying the legislature and the president mm-hmm. are going to do this. We mm-hmm. want to do this all through the courts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is is the Supreme Court itself is it become more activist or is it is it that is it a lack of urgency or desire among maybe Congress and the president to do this? It just feels like everything is falling to them. Yeah. And that's why mm-hmm. this becomes so important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I think it explains some of the Democrats' behavior on the on, on this. Yeah, I think there's been a party strategy to use the courts as ways to make law when legislatures, and, and at the state level, the same thing is true, can't or won't. Um, they get 10,000 cases uh, a year in terms of requests, and they only hear 80. But it turns out, or you know, in round numbers 80, it turns out that among those 80 in these past several years have been uh, dozens of game-changing lifestyle altering decisions, ones that I'd argue, and I suspect uh, many others would agree, should have been made by the legislature. Mm. Just an example, the the very controversial Heller case on uh, gun control. Congress can, can regulate guns. Let's just say that out loud, and the court said it in Heller. They won't. They can't even pass uh, an assault weapons ban sure. at the federal level. And while we could talk about lobbying and all that sort of thing, I think it's an abdication of responsibility by Congress rather than overreach of the court that has produced this environment. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Okay, one other quick, Nick, you want to get in? No, go ahead. Okay, do you think it's that dynamic is producing justices at the Supreme Court who want to engage those questions, or are they would they prefer to defer that back to the Congress? Oh, I, I think, and I'll go back to some of yeah. the things we've said in previous visits that I've made. Uh, I think it has produced the opposite. Justices like Gorsuch and Roberts have said this is Congress's responsibility. Go back to the Janus decision that mm-hmm. we talked about. Uh, it, it was an essential and an overt part of that decision. Congress can do what it likes relative to the Arbitration Act and some of those uh, union uh, and the National Labor Relations Act. They're just not. So I think you've seen very, I think one of the ways I described it when we were talking about those decisions is modest decisions of narrow impact because the court doesn't want uh, the role of legislator on top of adjudicator. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Oh. I recognize that the effect of some of those decisions is yeah. uh, common law. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but I think what you've seen is relatively modest decisions, a masterpiece. Yeah. They could have said uh, either bake the cake or you never have to bake the cake. But what they said was the, the most modest possible thing they could. The Colorado Commission overstepped, showed animus toward religion, and therefore Phillips, who's, as you might know, being pursued by Colorado yet again, um, Phillips is entitled uh, to a new hearing or he can continue to decline to do what it is that he declined to do. That's a modest decision, and and it is a refusal to sure. legislate on this question of conscience. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really interesting. I, I, I'm torn on my reaction to what the Democrats have done yesterday, because they, they certainly turned it into a circus. Mm-hmm. And there's part of me, and we've talked about civility, and I think that 
that's important in politics. It's important in life, right? You should have conversations and that and be civil to each other. And I don't think the Democrats were necessarily I don't think they were civil yesterday. I understand their motivation because this seat is so central uh, and I don't think they have enough power to prevent it, but uh, they're going to be on the losing end of a whole host of decisions down the road. And so if you're a, a Democratic senator and your constituency is concerned about Roe v. Wade and a whole host of other issues, uh, you want them to fight. And historically, there, somebody said yesterday that Democrats usually bring uh, butter knives to a gunfight, right? And they said, well, finally, yesterday, Democrats showed up and did what Republicans have historically done, right? I mean, I think Republicans play politics better than Democrats, but it was an ugly thing to see. Um, and, and I don't recall a hearing where I, Phil and I tangled about this yeah. once uh, a, a few episodes ago. I don't recall, uh, recall a hearing on, on any judicial candidate where Republicans did what was done yesterday. Uh, and, and if you go back and take a little peek at the vote tallies for all of the recent nominees, what you'll see is um, all the members of the court that were confirmed from Democratic uh, presidents had very substantial majorities. Mm -hmm. uh, the only two close votes that we've had for the nine that are there and those that preceded it are Justice Thomas, and we all recall yeah. the immensely controversial hearing. Uh, he was a 52-vote win, and Gorsuch only got 58 votes. It is embarrassing that Gorsuch only got 58 mm -hmm. votes because there are not plausible arguments sure. against him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I don't think there are plausible arguments against Kavanaugh, given what the Constitution sure. has said the president is entitled to do. I, I totally agree with that. I think from the Democratic perspective, it's not about Kavanaugh. I mean, Merrick Garland, Garland, Gar, Garland. Garland still Garland. looms over all of this, especially mm -hmm. for Democrat politicians who are saying mm -hmm. this is this is a big loss. But then it's not about then it's not about the institution at all. It's about it's about your team. Spot on. Yep. Which is yeah. ridiculous. The fact mm -hmm. that you have you wait seven seconds into the hearing to start demanding a delay uh, and, and you know of, over the whole you know document release thing it was 42,000 pages or something like that were released Which was 24 a hours sneaky move yeah but regardless <laughs> if they released all of the documents that pertain to his time in the Bush White House they would have never been able to go through it anyways sure. uh, this is about they don't want to go through no they absolutely yeah. do not because they again like you said they don't have a plausible reason to oppose him this is this is opposition politics sure. as it's as, yeah. at its finest and it's just ugly and brutal and just superficial and it just it really put a bad taste in my mouth is it is it different from what happened with garland in terms of i mean maybe the tone I and mean, the hearing is obviously uglier yeah mm -hmm. but is the in is the net result any different I, I i i totally agree with you guys i'm just trying to think a little bit about yeah, yeah. uh the the patterns that we're seeing here i, I think what happened yesterday was ugly it's it's a power play by the Democrats grasping for straws. But the Republicans, if they were in the position, I'm not convinced they would do anything differently. They've also taken it to another step and taken their supporters and made them part of the spectacle, too. Seventy people arrested in less than 24 hours mm -hmm. protesting. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's I, I can't even imagine that trying to get through a hearing that is that important to yeah. this pro important, sure. quote unquote, um, this. I, I don't think that the process necessarily was any better or any different than the Garland process. I, I think that it's just the newest evolution of this complete degradation and breakdown of civility in political life, especially when concerning the Supreme Court. I, I, I don't know. I, I, mm, 
it really, really, really bugged me. The, the documents question is a red herring, and and mm-hmm. I, it seems to me most people know that. Yeah. Well, they can't even get three hundred and twelve their... opinions uh, published. Uh, that is at least as many, maybe more than than many of the justices that are on there. Uh, it's three hundred and twelve opinions more than Elena Kagan had before she took her seat on the bench. And I'll just remind people that her documents as a solicitor general weren't even requested, mm-hmm. uh, let alone did Obama have to assert executive uh, privilege, which he undoubtedly would have done. Uh, this is not, uh, it seems to me, the wildest and craziest sort of assertion. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I think all betting people would have said if Kagan's solicitor general records were uh, subpoenaed, Obama would have said the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and rightly so. Uh, but she was confirmed with no judicial opinions and with the single most important set of documents about the way she thinks about the law, not in front of the Senate. I don't say that that's wrong, but I think we should just put in perspective what it is that people think they're going to find in these documents when they've got more than 300 opinions, 12 of which the Supreme Court review, uh, reviewed and affirmed, and tens of thousands of pages of documents on top of those. Sure. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's... I, it strikes me that, like you said, it's the document thing is a red herring. Um, the, I guess the alternative to that is trying to look at his actual record, and the, the narrative that you keep hearing in the media is that he's you know pro corporation and he's anti environment, and it's just this laundry list of standard kind of liberal democratic ideas that, frankly, are not true in that capacity. He's, I I would say he's more he seems very dispassionate about his opinions and mm-hmm. especially in cons- in um in relation to environmental law it was overreached by the federal government yeah. that he was ruling against mm-hmm. as opposed to you know the environment or environmental law mm-hmm. as a whole it, it, i i sure. just they're they're not playing the game well and well, it's, it's but here's the thing I, you're told I, I i don't disagree with you at all nick but the net effect of his decisions are likely to be sure. uh less support for environmental policies, more freedom for corporations. I mean, I think we can we can extrapo- extrapolate from his, his legal philosophy to policies sure. uh, that people will try to use the courts to, to adjudicate or to address, right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think it's a mistake to, for Democrats to be concerned about where this court will move in terms of abortion. I don't think they're going to overturn Roe v. Wade. As well, Thomas we can talk said. about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, but I think they will nibble away at a lot of issues in, in terms of vi- environmental uh, labor unions, they're going to be issues that have real policy implications for Democrats, and I think that's what's motivating this. You're right, yeah. but then that goes back to the concept of the legislator being the yes. one that takes care of those issues. I, I totally so agree with that. You, yeah. you can talk all you want about what his stances are. It's your job to change or get rid of or create new laws right. that do not allow for this to happen going forward. Absolutely. It's an abdication of responsibility from the from from Congress and from the president to say, let's do this mm-hmm. democratically. Now we're throwing it to the courts. And mm-hmm. I, I think I I see both what's happening with Kavanaugh and what happened with Garland all being tied together in this broader dynamic that troubles me. Sure. So. Justice Sotomayor is as far left, maybe more, than Justice Kavanaugh will be right. And here's a newsflash. That's how it's supposed to work. Mm-hmm. A Democratic president, a progressive, uh, nominated and had confirmed a, a progressive sure. uh, to the court. That's what the framers had in mind. So, so to pretend that there's outrage that ought to be associated with Donald Trump appointing this judge to, uh, to the bench as a justice makes absolutely zero sense. Th- you can worry. Sure. I get that. Yeah. 
But, but to pretend that this is somehow outside the parameters of what the Constitution expects of the president is indefensible. I think it's reasonable to say that a whole host of Republican presidential candidates, you know, the group that wasn't Trump, likely would have picked Kavanaugh maybe ahead of Gorsuch. Exactly right. Uh, and, and that's important. And I think that's mm-hmm. why it speaks to this is less about Kavanaugh, more mm-hmm. about the implications of, I think of his exactly seat. Right. Uh, there were other things, time. We should we should move on. To, well, I just yeah. thought to say one word because we're getting close to. Yeah. Uh, to you, we're hearing this phrase "settled law." Yes. And uh, Diane Feinstein used it uh, very early in the hearings about Roe versus Wade, and and I just want to uh, kind of say this: Justice Kavanaugh has only vo- or Judge Kavanaugh at this point um, has only voted four times to overturn precedent in his uh, appellate career. It's very few times. Um, he believes in stare decisis, this uh, notion in American law that we stand by uh, decided matters. And, and I just want to throw out there for people to mull over what exactly it is they think settled law is. So I'm hearing the argument that Roe versus Wade is that. Uh, candidate Clinton didn't think Citizens United was, and she didn't think Heller was, and uh, said repeatedly during her campaigning that she'd appoint justices who'd overturn those two things. <laughs> but here's a bigger one. Um, I'm, I'm sure that virtually every listener knows Plessy versus Ferguson, uh, uh, the horrifying case of separate but equal. Uh, this was an 1896 Supreme Court decision, not overturned until when? 1954. Now, does anybody think Brown versus Board shouldn't have overturned a, let's say it out loud, well-settled uh, mm-hmm. principle of law? I think it should have. Um, So the question isn't, can the court change its mind? The question is when they do and about what? And I think Kavanaugh has been very clear about that. The first thing he said is that he is moved by prior revisitings. So let's say about Roe versus Wade, that Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and a number of other opinions have reaffirmed Roe. And when Kavanaugh says Roe is settled law, what he's really saying is there's a body of law that's well settled, which is different, let's say, than Plessy or um, how about Buckley versus Vallejo, 1976, campaign finance limits, right, are unconstitutional. Um, I think the second thing he's saying is um, while he respects precedent and wants to see a body of law, his principal obligation is to discharge his constitutional duty, mm-hmm. and all justices have said that. So. The mere fact that the court decided a thing in the past doesn't mean it can't change its mind. It happens fairly rarely. Um, We watched Korematsu, I think, was overturned the day I was here uh, last. I don't think Roe is in danger. Frankly, I don't think um, any of the jurisprudence on same-sex marriage is is in jeopardy. And it's because uh, these have become bodies of law on which large portions of the American population have relied. But majority doesn't rule. Sure. A majority of Americans would have been perfectly happy preserving Plessy at the time Brown versus Board came along. And I think you don't want a justice who says, well, you know, I've got to sort of bend to the will uh, of the majority. Remember, Sandra Day O'Connor said, I'm not going to do that right. in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, having been nominated by Reagan, who said she's the fifth vote to undo Roe. Right. Right. So is Roe well settled? I think it is. Is it likely to be overturned? I think it's not. Is it fair game for further constitutional analysis? I think it is. How do you think? So I I find myself, I think a lot about Kavanaugh, but I also think about John Roberts a lot. 
Uh, and his his new unique ro- role, right, is uh, whether he's the swing vote or whatever that may be. But as chief justice, he sees all the politics playing out. He is somebody who cares deeply about the court as an institution. And we've talked about this a bit, you know, in the past. But it strikes me that he has to be demoralized by some of this this de- the developments in terms of the politicization of the perception of the court. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that influence how he handles cases, or I mean, what? Uh, I think it's always influenced yeah. the way chiefs have handled cases. Uh, stay with Brown versus Board for a minute. Uh, remember that Justice uh, Warren went ahead and had Brown one and Brown two, mm-hmm. because he knew he needed unanimity on the question of separate but equal, and he got it. But it was because he didn't entangle himself into the mechanics of desegregating schools in Brown one. He wanted a clear, unequivocal politically expedient, maybe expedient's not the right word, politically meaningful statement on segregation. And he made very conscious decisions as a former politician, a governor of California, to lay out those decisions in such a way that the court got a chance not to fight about busing or something like that, but simply to answer the question, is it all right to treat some people equal and some people sort of equal? Sure. So I don't think Roberts is doing anything. Is he going to do that? I think he is. Is he good at it? I think he's shown some real promise that he is. Is it new? I don't think it is. Sure. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This I, I I can't wait to see history play out here because I yeah. feel like this is going to be a significant appointment. I may not agree with all the decisions that they the court moves yeah. towards, but I, I am curious mm-hmm. to see. We're at a unique moment in history right now. Mm-hmm. Um, was there was there something else, Tom, that in your list? Um, I think I would stay there. I'm a little worried about the idea that we have uh, started to try and tarnish a nominee based on the person who nominated them. Uh, That is to say, uh, there were several attempts yesterday to say, if Donald Trump nominated you, you're as bad as he is. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's unfair. It'd be unfair if Republicans did it to Democrats. It's unfair when Democrats do it to Republicans. Um, And it ignores a person who has spent his entire life building what is, I think, by anybody's estimation, an enormously um, estimable uh, judicial career. Uh, I said, and I had a couple emails after the last time I was here from people who listened saying, wait a minute, he's an originalist. And, and I would just clarify and the say- The Kavanaugh. Uh, Kavanaugh, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Not you, Kavanaugh. He may act like <laughs> Judge one, Kavanaugh. But, but the thing I said was he's never described himself yeah. as one. And, and the reason I said it was to, to suggest that he has always aspired to be mm-hmm. at least as high as an appellate uh, court justice, and maybe a Supreme Court justice. Um, and he's lived his whole life in a way that makes him good for that job, sure. whether you agree with him ideologically or not. So it really, it, it troubles me if we go down the road of, well, Trump or Clinton or, you know, whoever's next. I hate them, therefore I have to hate you. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. I, that's that's very worrisome to me. I, I agree. This with whole that. con, this whole thing is worrisome. Yeah, I, I mean, I wonder how much of how much of the rhetoric that comes out of the Democrats right now is not purely political in the sense of the um, closeness of the midterms and how yeah. different it would be if that wasn't the case, um, because I, these are such. Uh, again, kind of super superficial arguments that it does not take a lot of vetting to figure out that there's not a lot of um, a lot of substance to them, mm-hmm. um, and and that's really worrisome to me. Yeah, 
I, I, if, if we've started a race to the bottom, mm-hmm. the bottom's really bad uh, for all of us. Uh, an eight justice court is really bad. Uh, but, but ignoring the constitutional obligations of the president uh, and, and the Senate is even worse. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really, really bad. I, I totally agree. But I'm um, with Nick. This is, this is all about people running against Trump. Right. Oh, these, it was the presidential contenders on the Democratic side who were leading these attacks. And again, on one level, that makes sense. They are trying to create clips and a perspective, mm-hmm. uh, but it doesn't help the democracy as a whole. We've but got. should it be like that? Well, Nick, you lived in D.C. You know. <laughs> They're terrible people. They I, really real quick, Joe, I know we got to move on, but I read a couple fascinating articles this week talking about originalism. Uh-huh. And... Whether and it was it was originalists arguing about that. Well, it's it's really hard to know what the founders really at, intended, mm-hmm. and it sounds like there's some debate within the originalist community about what the original intent was. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that always been the case, or yes. is this a more okay? So there's yeah. so to say somebody's an originalist, there's not a defined philosophy. It there's not be, one kind. Okay. Okay. Yeah. This is a little like being a, a religious conservative. Yes. Right? You know, there are conservative Episcopalians, Catholics, yeah. Lutherans, and they have different takes on a general philosophy. Uh, the, the, the originalist camp writ large says, stick close to the text, mm-hmm. be modest in your decisions, and to the extent you can discern it, try and understand what the framers intended when they wrote uh, whatever provision is, you know, the Second Amendment, the Eighth Amendment, or whatever, um, and don't make law. Does that get more difficult as the nature of cases, as our world becomes more globalized, more complicated, yeah. more technological, mm-hmm. trying to determine what the original intent is? Yeah, well, we're going to talk issues. in a minute mm-hmm. about whether an algorithm is free speech. Exactly, right. Let's just, let's, let's say <laughs> that's the old. framers were not thinking about a right. Google algorithm when they wrote the first. Right, and that's a... That's that doesn't a, mean we can't think of a way to apply the first. Mm-hmm. It means they clearly weren't thinking about it. So the question is, what are the principles that they embodied in the first? And will those apply to an algorithm the way they might to um, political speech in the public square? And the answer is they might. Is that a good approach? Is it is it good to think about that, what the original intent was, mm-hmm. among individuals who couldn't possibly envision the way in which our country now exists? Well, but I guess the point is if you can envision the principles they had in mind yeah. and those become the anchors for the way you think about these kinds of questions, you get consistency, sure. you get reliability, you get durability. If what you say is, well, listen, let's just listen to what the public is saying Let's make judgments as we go. Let's let the Constitution evolve and oh, live and breathe. You know, <laughs> the, oh. old, the old Breyer Constitution. <laughs> well, what you don't have is a philosophy that can produce reliability, durability, consistency, and that sort of thing. Now, I don't mean to say that originalists are always consistent, reliable, sure. and durable. But at least the argument they make is if you've got agreed first principles and they are driving your decision-making relative, let's say, to speech or religion or guns or, or punishment— um, they should yield relatively consistent results. Sure. The living constitutionalists don't have a similar approach, in my judgment at least, in terms of consistency, because what they're doing is saying, well, how do we think the Constitution ought to address this current issue, sure. which is really the same as saying, what do we think about it, irrespective right. of the Constitution? Mm-hmm. Well, it would still be grounded in the Constitution, right? I mean, I guess that's... So what Breyer. does that mean? 
Well, you look to the document. You don't look to intent. So I, I, I see what you're saying. I, I am persuaded by the living Constitution. When Breyer makes his case, I understand why one says that the Constitution should be interpreted in a more modern context. I, I find that appealing. Uh, while the well, I agree we should interpret it in a more modern context. I'm saying that the first principles continue to matter. Yeah. And I think what, what Justice Breyer would say, and here's this beautiful, we had this great phrase this morning in, in a mm. presentation, um, two people agree on everything except their opinions, yes. <laughs> right? So I think we agree that the Constitution is the starting point. I think we agree that the Constitution is a thing that we ought to uh, revere. Yeah. But the question is, how do you apply it in a context, in your judgment, sure. and I'm, I'm agreeing with you, let's say a Google algorithm, that the framers couldn't anticipate. The originalist will say, what were the first principles? The living constitutionalist is gonna say, well, let's don't worry so much about what the first principles were, you know, when people were still wearing powdered wigs. <laughs> right. Let's ask what they should be now. Sure. And I guess I'm saying that gives a greater latitude to make law than it is to interpret law. I, mm -hmm. I would recognize, and again, we, yes. we agree on everything except our opinion and about I, it, right? And you're I, basically I, wrong, I, though. That's right. <laughs> no, and I will say, like, I'm, I am, given what we talked about today mm -hmm. in terms of keeping a distinct line between mm -hmm. the judicial branch and the legislative branch, the living constitution becomes more difficult to have a clear line. Yeah, you sure. say, and I, I exactly. grant that. I still am willing to do to, to give them that latitude mm -hmm. to say, these are individuals who mm -hmm. are learned. Uh, we're going to trust them to make that interpretation. But mm -hmm. but I am, I am concerned about how do you then distinguish between legislation and judicial. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's kind of a good point in yeah. itself, that you decide at that point what you think mm -hmm. is best at that particular point in time that mm -hmm. I, I don't think that's a good if, if that's the case then the best interest is always the interest of the person who is currently there dealing with it at that mm -hmm. moment not what came before or what came or what's going to come after because they yeah. could have wildly different opinions mm -hmm. I, I the only thing I, I know we got to move on the only thing I might push back on is no. is the originalist argue that they've got a monopoly on what the what was the in, intent and I'm not so sure that's the case. Maybe one's mm -hmm. individual biases, legal biases, mm -hmm. might influence how they understand that original intent, which isn't all that much, all that different from the the living constitution. But listen, uh, and I know, yes, yeah. uh, we, we keep saying we know we have to <laughs> move on. Know, so know, I just want to throw one more example yeah. at you. People, people frame originalists as ones who say, I will only ever do what it is that uh, uh, John Hancock would have done, right. or you know, Madison or Hamilton or mm -hmm. somebody like that. Think about gun control. Uh, the Heller decision doesn't say the Second Amendment means you can own a gun, any gun, for any purpose, and take it anywhere you like. The Heller decision says the Second Amendment provides a limited individual right to possess a firearm. But reasonable regulation consistent with modern needs is fine. And it feels to me like that's not an unreasonable way of applying an originalist proposal that is, the framers clearly thought an armed population was an untamable one without letting people own machine guns or, uh, you know, grenade launchers. I mean, I realize that's sort of an odd, but, but we take for granted that we can regulate those things uh, because we can. can. As long as Congress does its job, which, which <laughs> they haven't, right? And it's, yeah. Right. Oh. All right, we should talk beer. <laughs> yes, let's Nick, do, do that. you want to describe our first beer? Yes. Do you have Which the bottle? I do have it. It's okay. in front of me because I put it down there. It was a there's a word on there I didn't understand. I always give you the hard words. You didn't know what it where? <laughs> What's uh, the Nosferatu? Yes, that that the devil. <laughs> That's the one. Yeah. Okay. 
<laughs> um, yeah, we had a uh, Nosferatu uh, uh, Imperial Red Ale uh, from Great Lakes, which Great Lakes makes great stuff. Yes. Um, I, I, I love uh, reds in general. Tom, I think you said it. It's, it's very, very malty. Mm-hmm. Um, not a lot of sweetness to it. I, I don't know. I liked it a lot. It was, Tom, what'd you think? I, I'm with Nick on this one 100%. In fact, I kind of like the side of the bottle on the front of which is Nosferatu, you know, sort of Dracula mm-hmm. and, and Imperial Red Ale's bitter teeth. <laughs> I didn't taste any bitterness in it, no, but it no. was really good. It, it's mm-hmm. a great beer. Really I really enjoyed that yeah. one as well. And I, I always love reds, but this is maybe up on the list. Yeah, so. it's really good. So the second beer we just opened is from uh, my good friend Todd down in Kentucky, and he brought us up a bunch of beer. We sampled one of them earlier. This is a Kentucky Bourbon Barrel Coffee Stout. And we held this one for Tom because Todd always enjoys when Tom's on the podcast and Tom always enjoys a coffee stout. So I'll let you, I'll let you begin. What was sort of, we just started sipping it, but the reaction. Todd's my new best friend. (laughs) And I hope he's listening. This is really good beer. Uh, Now I'm very partial to stouts. I love uh, a mix with uh, stout and coffee, throw in the bourbon barrel and it really is. But here's what this isn't overpowering and boozy and so heavy that that it's syrupy it's really good beer if, makes, if you like this style who makes the other um uh bourbon stout well uh, goose island is the, is island the company one. that's mm-hmm. now famous for it i don't like justifiably it. i oh all right <laughs> um but you like a lighter one like this. yeah like yeah. this this just yeah this mm-hmm. appealed to me a lot more yeah. yeah the the goose island one like you said it's very boozy mm-hmm. um yeah this was much more subtle a lot more um, coffee notes to it. Yes. I, I liked it a lot. Yeah. It, very, very good. Very, very drinkable. Very I, drinkable. I enjoyed that too. Yeah, it Todd's was, the best. <laughs> and not too bourbony. No, uh, there are right. times when you have one of that. You know, there's too much mm-hmm. bourbon, and this is yep. not that at all. It was yep. a, a very good beer. So Delicious. thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anything that we try, uh, you can find on the Untapped app uh, after we finish the episode, because I'm sure we'll have plenty to put in there. Um, yeah, so Untapped, iOS and Android, we're just Barstool Politics on there. Um, so follow us and uh, and check what we uh, what we drink. Sounds good. Speed round. Yeah. All right. So we have an outline, <laughs> and then stuff happens, and we have to veer from the outline. So uh, apparently, President Donald Trump is right that there is a deep state of top government officials conspiring to thwart his will. Bastards. Yes. <laughs> And now one of them is taking that uh, to the pages of the New York Times. So we are we are taping on Wednesday, uh, and literally like at half an hour, forty five minutes before we taped, there was this article that this op ed that was released. The New York Times notes that it's taking a rare step of publishing an anonymous op ed essay. They say they have done so at the request of the author, a senior official in the Trump administration whose identity is known to the Times and whose job would be jeopardized by its disclosure. This. This op-ed goes after Trump in a very meaningful way. He says that the dilemma which Trump does not fully grasp is that many of the senior officials in his own administration are working diligently from within to frustrate parts of his agenda and worst inclinations. Uh, He says, I would know I am one of them. Uh, To be clear, ours is not a popular resistance of the left. We want the administration to succeed and think that many of its policies have clearly already made America safer and more prosperous. Uh, But we believe our first duty is to this country, and the president continues to act in a manner that is detrimental to the health of our republic. The language is is powerful. Uh, The author mentions that there's conversation within the highest levels of government about invoking the 25th Amendment. Um, the work, this isn't the work of the so-called deep state. He says it's, or he or she says it's the work of the steady state. 
Uh, I'll read one more thing and then we can talk about this. Uh, he closes, the, the author closes by saying, the bigger concern is not what Mr. Trump has done to the presidency, but rather what we as a nation have allowed him to do to us. We have sunk low with him and allowed our discourse to be stripped of civility. And again, this is somebody from within the administration. We don't know who. Hopefully, I'm sure they'll they'll let us know, you know, later this afternoon. Yeah, Trader McTraderson. But a pretty significant development uh, in terms of the administration uh, from within saying that they don't have faith with the president. Um, I don't know why anybody is surprised about this. I, I, we, I mean, we've talked about it yeah. ad nauseum on this. We, at this point, uh, between reports that are coming out and our own inclinations, it seems obvious that people are running the government around him and attempting to steer policy away from what his inclinations are to moderate what's coming out of the White House. I, I, I'm not shocked in this, by this in any way. And Tom, I mean, you mentioned before we started recording, the timing of this seems extraordinarily suspect to me. I, I, I don't disagree with what the person is saying necessarily, but the fact that this is coming out this close to the midterms, just, it seems, it seems odd to me. And I, I think our our civil discourse in, in general is, is in the toilet right now. I also think our media is not above contributing to that detriment sure. of civil discourse. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> Tom, what was this? so big, big picture thoughts on this. First big picture thought is anonymity is a shield for overstatement. Sure. Yeah, that isn't to say this is, uh, but, but I think it's wise to be healthily skeptical of anonymous speech. I mean, we have a long history of it, Voltaire, right? But um, here's somebody writing uh, in a way that can't be rebutted, that can't be refuted, that can't even really in a serious way be responded to because you don't know who they are, you don't know what their role is, you don't know where they sit in the White House, you don't know what they're privy to. Uh, I mean, again, I've said it many times, I'm not an apologist for Donald Trump at all, and, and many of the things he has said and done are appalling. That said... Uh, I'm a little skeptical of anonymous mm-hmm. speech, and this smacks to me. We're going to talk, I think, about the Bob Woodward book, yes, uh, which also is, I'm told, having not read it yet, replete with unnamed sources. Um, I, the, the second thought, this feeds the narrative that there is a resistance, whether this person <laughs> yes. says they're in it uh. or not, when there are uh, widely reported anonymous sources saying negative things. Yeah. Um, and I guess I'm of the view that it would be courageous for a person, I realize it's probably job suicide, but uh, it would be courageous for a person to say, I'm this person, and I saw this, and here's how I know, assuming that they're not violating you know, a, a security clearance promise or something like that. Um, I, I, does he say crazy things? Clearly. Uh, does he do crazy things? It appears he does. Should we believe everything in this editorial? Sure. Uh, I'm skeptical. I, I would prefer, as you suggested, that somebody come forward and say, I'm in there, I've seen this, whether it's Mattis or Kelly or whoever mm-hmm. it is, and say, I've seen this, we should be terrified. I think mm-hmm. that is the, the preferable method. Mm-hmm. I think short of that, I am actually pleased that somebody from within the administration is attacking him, or attacking him for his conduct not his ideology 
uh, to say that you know we yeah. agree with the agenda yes. that mm-hmm. they're pursuing, mm-hmm. but he is not a stable individual. And mm-hmm. and they point out in the op-ed, yeah. they say it may be cold comfort in this chaotic era, but Americans should know that there are adults in the room. We fully recognize what is happening, and we are trying to do what's right, even when Donald Trump won't. So I think their mm-hmm. argument would be that is this a long-standing argument? We're we're doing good by staying part of the administration as mm-hmm. opposed to leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, it bothers me that the there are individuals within the administration who are actively trying to prevent the president from doing what he's doing. That that yeah. in terms of the office of the presidency, this is deeply disturbing. Mm-hmm. Are they doing the right thing? Probably, uh, but uh, you know this is when you've got unelected officials now dictating policy. Uh, we should be deeply concerned about all of this. And mm-hmm. and I, I share the concerns about the anonymous nature of this, but uh, this feels to me like it's uh, it, it's a it's a big deal in terms of a development. Yeah. And I'm not, please don't hear me saying fake news or something like that. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. I, I'm saying that, that the cover of anonymity gives you a chance to, to buff your words in ways that yes. may not be entirely representative of things that took place. And I, and I, I guess we should just <coughs> be mindful of that. Mm-hmm. Be interesting to know how many of the things that have been produced by this White House that seem to have had positive effects. You know, for example, the NAFTA agreement with, with Mexico. Uh, is that in spite of or because of Trump? Yes. You know, did, did this crowd take something off of his desk right. to produce that <laughs> yes, agreement? Right. Uh, or did he do it despite the fact that right. they tried? I, that's Someday we're going to read a book about that, and it's going to be really good reading. It, yeah. it will be. They talk in the article or in the op-ed. They talk about the dual track with Russia that the yeah. administration is pushing back and wants a hard line against Russia, even though Trump is undermining that. But there are other issues, I think, absolutely mm-hmm. with economics and and uh, w- with Mexico and and in Canada. Is Trump's bizarre behavior productive? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Your point's so important, though, that that if the precedent is established, that White House staff can veto the president yes. uh, surreptitiously. Oh, This is almost as scary as what's happening in, in the Senate hearing room relative to the Supreme Court. I agree. I mean, yeah. beyond, I don't even think it's that. I, we can, we're we're going to talk about the Woodward thing. I think there was one point where um, Trump was saying that he wanted to assassinate yes, Assad, Assad. Yeah. and someone kept Polling, or was it uh, 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 the NAFTA agreement? I it, was the NAF- it was the no, it was a, a trade agreement with South Korea. That's what it was. That Cohen kept pulling off Trump's desk yeah, because he just was going to sign he was going to remember. He wasn't going to remember it like several times. Like he's just. It's not that he's constantly trying to impose these you know draconian measures or laws that are have have you know wide ranging um, consequences for everyone. It's that he's a crazy person sure. and that you know. There are people that are are resulting to what parents would do with their children to stop that from happening. But the impact of that in terms of the democracy is just, as Tom pointed out, it's it's debilitating, right? You can't have a democracy when those who are elected don't exert power. Mm-hmm. It becomes, it's a puppet master. Now, to an extent, I'm yeah. glad Cohen is maybe pulling those things off Trump's desk. And, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about Assad in just a second. It, but yes, this is this is deeply troubling. Well, all right, let's transition into the the Woodward book. <laughs> As Nick pointed out, boys, we're officially in Crazy Town, or at least that's what Chief Justice John Kelly said. Chief of Staff. Chief, I'm sorry, right? I'm, I'm still thinking Kavanaugh <laughs> or uh, John Roberts. Chief of Staff John Kelly. So according to accounts released from Bob Wood, Bob Woodward's new book, Fear, the picture painted of Trump by his closest associates is not a good one. 
Woodward quotes Kelly as saying, He's an idiot. It's pointless to try to convince him of anything. He's gone off the rails. We're in crazy town. I don't know why any of us are here. I hope he said it in that voice. This is the worst (laughs) job I've ever had. The book reports that after one discussion about North Korea, uh, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis was particularly exasperated and alarmed, telling close associates that the president acted like and had the understanding of a fifth or sixth grader. At one point, Trump told Mattis to assassinate Syrian leader Bashar al-Assad. Mattis responded he would be working on the plan, but then told an aide, we're not going to do any of that. That sounds like Musetti, <laughs> <It> right? <does. laughs> yes, we're not going to do that. Uh, a colleague of ours at North Central. Former Chief Economic Advisor Gary Cohen once removed a letter from Trump's desk, fearful that Trump would sign it in the process, in the process dramatically undermine U.S.-South Korean relations. Gentleman Bob Woodard, Woodward is one of the most respected journalists out there. This is not... Uh, the other guy, Michael, what was his name? Uh, Fire and Fury, whatever that guy's name is. This is that not Amorosa. Uh, the book provides an unprecedented look behind the scenes. Nick, it appears that it's even worse than we thought. Did you think that possible? Well, I mean, clearly Bob Woodward is a communist um, and should be arrested immediately. <laughs> ding, ding, bell. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, I should really start that. Um, I, I mean, realistically, I, I, again, I don't think any... If anybody had any illusions that this wasn't going on, then you really need to listen to the news a little yeah. bit more closely. I was—I mean, I'm not shocked by any of this. Maybe the book itself will have, you know, more bombshells, but every one of these little tidbits, you know, what Mattis says about him and that he has, you know, the, the capacity of a fifth or sixth grader, I just assumed that. And people have said that, exact those exact statements previously. I, again, I think the timing of this is relatively mm-hmm. suspect. Um, having said that, I do think it's a major concern going forward because these reports seem to be getting more and more traction and there's a, a greater volume of them. Um, I, I It's disconcerting at the same time that, what is this, the third, fourth book that's come out about Trump and the administration in a year and a half? Um, I... I, I, I just I don't know I don't know what to make of it anymore I don't know what it's hard to parse out what is just pure fantasy and what is real and when it's something that is this important and could be this bad I would like to know what the actual facts are hopefully Woodward would be the one who can parse through that sure. but it gets to that point where we're in this cycle now that nothing is real you can make your own reality and it seems like a lot of people are making their own reality even outside of the administration that's such an important point i I, you're i think you're right that woodward is potentially the authority to do that two-time pulitzer prize winner i mean somebody who's uh, had access to presidents going back in history but we're in a world trump and mattis and everybody released statements yesterday saying the book was garbage it's not true and suddenly truth isn't truth uh Mm -hmm. and it it leaves us in a really bad place Mm -hmm. tom I read a really fascinating uh, essay a couple of weeks ago that suggested that uh, this postmodern truth isn't truth (laughs) is a result of, in some ways, sort of higher ed, which has said truth is relative, uh, it is what you think it is. Uh, It was a really interesting take on how we've gotten to a point where uh, we just say this is a lie. If if you're Kelly or if you're Cohen, or uh, that's not the truth. Uh, truth has become less meaningless or less meaningful to us. Um, I'm I'm entirely with Nick on all of this. I'm not surprised. Uh, I'm just as troubled. Uh, I, I you hardly know what to say anymore yeah. in in some ways. 
I hope that there is some effort made uh, to substantiate the quotes and claims. Um, uh, Bob Woodward's reputation as Sterling, and, and I mean no, uh, uh, I don't mean to discount that, but I assume he didn't talk to Jim Mattis and ask him, did you say this? There is an anonymous source saying, I heard Jim <coughs> Mattis say it. Right. And there's an anonymous source saying, I heard Cohen say he's taking things off the desk. I'd love to get uh, a little probing uh, journalism on who it is that told these things to people and, and make judgments about their reliability, other than to say if yes. Bob Woodward wrote it, then it must be true. Right. I think that's right. One of the, I don't know if you guys listened to this, but they released the conversation, or I guess Woodward released it, when he called Trump, and they had the conversation mm-hmm. about, apparently Woodward tried multiple times to have a conversation with Trump and was stalled and the book was done at which point trump said well let me talk to woodward and they have this back and forth and woodward in that in that conversation you hear him talking about his methods what he did and he said i've talked to a lot of people uh lots of conversations it's tough but fair i tried to reach you mr president i and trump does what trump does well who did you call you could have called me right away and he says i talked to kelly and conway i talked to uh, the press secretary i talked to all these different people and uh, Trump says, well, they, they didn't mention it to me. Kellyanne Conway's in the room. Mm-hmm. And she says, well, I put it through the right sources, right? So for me, that moment, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, it would be nice to have some of those details about who said what. Mm-hmm. But even in that conversation, the credibility gap between Trump and Woodward was absolutely. startling. Yeah. I mean, journalism still matters. And, mm-hmm. and, and good journalism matters. And if mm-hmm. this – and I, I – I, I hope it is, and I have no reason not to believe that Woodward wouldn't do good work. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the contrast between that and, and Trump, really, it hits home. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kenny, going but, back, uh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. That's one of the reasons yeah. to be more judicious in our acceptance of it. Yes. That is, if we say this just confirms the bias we already had, right. and, and, and probably a well-founded bias, yeah. but if it just confirms that, then that relieves Woodward or those who... Uh, are part of this from saying, I don't want them to reveal sources, but point. there could certainly be ways of um, substantiating these claims. Kellyanne Conway didn't say this. Yeah. We know that, right? The press secretary didn't say this. Um, people who have either that uh, New York Times editorial angle or something maybe more nefarious did. So I, I, I want to be careful yeah. about saying, well, we all think Trump's this bad, <laughs> right. and Bob Woodward's told uh, Bob Woodward told us he is. So now we know it's true. <laughs> right, right. And, and all of that might be right, right. but I, I think we should ask some hard questions. This is a great point. One of the things yesterday, so I, I was on Twitter and I was watching some journalists, the White House correspondents who talked to the White House and they talked to Mattis and, and John Kelly, and they all said, "It's Kelly says this stuff all the time, right? I mean, this, they kind of like you guys were saying, he calls Trump an idiot all the time. We don't usually publish this because, right. you know, we want some yeah. decorum, but... This is not news, yeah. uh, and I think that that struck me a little bit too. That really, mm-hmm. well, that's if that's the case, uh, maybe we should dig deeper. So, <laughs> all right, I this. Oh wait, we're not getting to my. Oh yeah, we are. We're getting to yeah. my favorite topic. That I could have done the whole episode on our next topic. So, our uh, Google's algorithm rhythms free speech. So, President Trump, in a series of early morning t- uh, Twitter posts last week, attacked Google for what he claimed was an effort to intentionally suppress conservative news outlets, supportive of his administration. Mr. Trump's remarks 
uh, add an additional warning uh, later in the day that Google, Facebook, and Twitter have to be careful have escalated a campaign against the internet industry that has become more pointed since Apple, Google, Facebook removed content by Alex Jones, who runs the site InfoWars and has been a vocal supporter of Mr. Trump. In a tweet, a tweet sent at 5.24 a.m. Nick, you're up then. Uh, Trump said, <laughs> they have yes. rigged it for me and others so that almost all the stories and news is bad. Fake CNN is prominent. Uh, we went on to note that they are controlling what we can see and cannot see. This is very serious situation. Will be addressed. Tom. I almost can't control my excitement to talk about this topic. It raises questions of what role the government should play in regulating companies like Google, Facebook, and Twitter. Are these utilities? Uh, also, the question of whether something like Google's search algorithm is protected as free speech. Um, just go, Tom. I just, I just, just, just lead us. Well, I lead by saying, as always... I'm opposed to regulation. Yeah, exactly. Period. Yeah. <laughs> There's occasionally good regulatory ideas. Generally speaking, I like a, a, a wide open market. And my instinct here would be to say Congress can't do anything better than what the free market can. Um, so my instinct is that we should not regulate uh, these entities. But let's, let's argue the other side for a yeah. minute. Um, you can make a case that they are public utilities of the sort that the gas, electric, telephone, and other sorts of companies are. That is to say, uh, they have dominant market shares. They are indispensable to public discourse. And the entry barriers to competing with them are enormously high. So the free marketeer says, well, then we just need an alternative to Google. <laughs> That's me, like saying we need an alternative <laughs> to a power company that already owns the lines yes. and the power generation stations. So. I, I can imagine a context in which Congress might say uh, these are akin to a public utility and they should bend to the will of Congress, which will regulate. I'm hoping there's a middle ground, and, and the middle ground would be disclosure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is, it sounds to me like uh, no one's quite sure exactly how these algorithms work, other than people that work at Google or, yeah. or, or somewhere like that. and. God knows that senators who are going to interview the CEOs, and, and let's come back to the CEO of Google saying he won't testify in front of Congress. Um, the senators know nothing about this either. I think what would be fascinating is to have senators aided by tech people who know how this works, asking hard questions about the construction of the algorithms so the public knows. Uh, you can't be a, a thoroughgoing disliker of regulation and libertarianism if you don't want lots of disclosure. I think when people have information and can make adult judgments, we should hold them responsible for them. Sure. But if they don't have the information and they can't make a good judgment, and I can't, uh, I don't have any idea how these algorithms work. Mm -hmm. that's the thing. So I think we should get the goods. I, I, Google does, I, mean, I don't know about Facebook or Twitter, and Google does release apparently, has a document where they release how they make these decisions and their algorithms. Now, Nick, you might be able to understand them, but I think Tom and I, we might struggle <laughs> That's with That's exactly that. right. But Google's argument here is that, hey, we're transparent. We tell you how the algorithms work. Now, it's individuals who create those algorithms. Exactly. So it's not like the algorithms are something distinct from intentionality of humans. Right. Uh, but but that I think transparency certainly matters. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. I think transparency in how they're created, who is creating them, and what influence they have, and looking at the statistics of what is influenced and what isn't is vitally important. 
should the people in Congress be in charge of that by themselves? Absolutely not, because they're morons when it comes to this. <laughs> um, but I, there, I, when it comes to this type of technology, it, it like you said, it doesn't just appear out of the ether. It requires uh -huh. input by a human being right. that gives it intent to specifically look for something. Yeah. Or beyond that, mm -hmm. it runs on a neural network or something that learns but again it's based off of input that it's receiving uh to make a decision on something regardless we don't know who those people are or how those algorithms are written you can mm -hmm. talk about that they have these algorithms and they release some aspect of it but they release a description of it yes. right yes not the algorithm itself right. which is proprietary mm -hmm. right right yeah which uh, again they would probably that would probably be another issue that would come up almost immediately when someone started demanding information about it i think one of the, not to interrupt but one of the core principles within that they say is prominence so something that is of, of certain relevance like it's mentioned a lot uh and also when things are updated right so there's there's a timeliness and scope of a topic that will drive Google searches. So if it was, say, around like Christmas and there were mentions yes. of, yeah, Christmas yeah. or the Bible or Jesus or something like that, I, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a dumb analogy, frankly, but it's... Sure. If if those are some of the parameters that you're talking about, then that's not good enough. Like that doesn't create nuance and and you know that human understanding of what something is and context and the ability to parse out whether or not it's legitimate. A, 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 an algorithm is not capable of doing that based on quantity over quality. They they just can't do it yet. I'm, I'm going to make a libertarian argument against Nick. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, shouldn't the market then determine that? If Google's algorithms produce sucky results, then there's going to be an alternative. But I, I'm generally pleased with what Google does for me. I feel like I find information that's relevant for me. I don't want them... You don't I, know I, what they're not doing for you. That's right. true. That's true. Absolutely. But I don't feel like... Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, here's not, what here's what the righty's going to say. Uh, yeah. I'll just play that role for a minute. Of course you like it because it's confirming your biases. You right. love what Google comes up with and that's exactly the point Trump's making. Mm -hmm. But what it's is it conv there's no political elements in Google's algorithms. To pretend Google's mm -hmm. not a political entity oh, is to ignore no. recent I'm not history. Go th no, I totally agree with that. We'll build a censored search engine for China. But we will not work for the Defense Department mm -hmm. on in artificial intelligence. I mean, so at a macro sure. level, I can imagine why an awful lot of Americans look at Google, they, the, the entire debacle of, of firing this guy because he says something over an internal server about sure. women in science. There, are, there is a political culture there that I think a lot of people say may infect. I'm not saying it, sure. but I guess I just want to play the other side. For I'm a saying here. it. <laughs> infect the algorithm. And Bill, the fact that you like yeah. the results is, in fact, that might be evidence that they're right. Right. <laughs> no, I, I, I can appreciate that point. I, I will say I don't find Trump's argument that uh, that conservative news outlets are being censored by Google uh, credible at all, mm -hmm. uh, given what I I'm, the little that I know about how Google goes about this. I think Google is more interested in making money than it is pursuing particular political ideologies. I, hmm, I'm not sure you can separate the two. I, I, right, one point that I do want to make, yeah. you guys are in higher ed. Um, do you think that your students would be able to survive or understand how to gather the information that is required of them in their classes if they didn't have Google or social media or anything like that at this point? 
It'd be a it'd be a very different reality. Right. It'd be a different reality. Yeah. You, you, nobody walks to the library anymore. No, I don't yeah. even think they know where it is or what those but, books but, are there. But for. in some ways, the beautiful it's thing is museum. that they can't. Uh, for my business law class, you can use Lexis. Mm-hmm. It's an entirely objective yeah. public record sort of thing. Um, so I, I, I let me just defend students for one brief moment <laughs> here. I think there are some databases that produce information that isn't tilted in a way that that. And Bill, I'm. Yeah, know, playing the devil's advocate here about sure. uh, Google, um, but that isn't tilted. Here's one interesting thing about free speech. If it is speech, it has content. And essentially, I think you've conceded the algorithm question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If they are entirely neutral in terms of content and analysis, it's not speech. It's a tool. Sure. Mm-hmm. If they're expressive communication, that is, they're saying something, then Trump wins but it's free speech. Does that make sense? It does. And and in some ways I'm okay with that. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is mm-hmm. Google's choice. They, yeah. It's a, they have the right to corporate speech. And Absolutely. uh what that may I look don't know like. If they do anymore. <laughs> You're so socialist. I know. Like this is this is and I I'll I'll say this right now. This is the one issue where I am firmly in the camp of these need to be regulated, regulated. in some way. As a utility like and, that there's mm-hmm. they're so important in terms of the information yeah, getting my out. point with the the students saying it's not that they're stupid yeah. or that they yeah. they don't yeah, yeah, understand yeah. that it's that it's the creation and use of these systems has so fundamentally changed the understanding of the yeah. ability to gather information yeah. Yeah, yeah. that we now have generations of people who don't know how to live without it or yeah. what the alternative is mm-hmm. that to me says that that's a utility at mm-hmm. that point. It's akin to electricity sure. right. or natural gas. So something about that, regardless, and, and it's still, these are not necessarily private companies, mm-hmm. but these are corporate entities that are now just as important, if not more important, than a standard utility because this is information that people rely on on a daily basis to communicate and, sure. and understand the world. This is fundamental to existence in our society. Mm-hmm. That Lower needs courts have something. said that. Uh, uh, this is such a great point you're making, pretty Thank repeatedly. You. So that when parolees are told you can't be on Facebook or use social media, uh, the courts have consistently said this is a, a an indispensable part of modern um, culture, and and to take a person off of these mm-hmm. uh, communication devices violate some fundamental rights they have. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're totally right that they're, this is not like uh, Instagram or something like that. Right. These are bigger, more important kinds of things. Google, maybe Facebook. Google's the one that's... Yeah, I, that's a really good point, Center Nick. thought. Yeah. Thank you. I, I, what I would say <laughs> is my concern is when you begin the process of regulating that, is that are we going to end up at a better place? And I have no faith in that. I mean, we, we, spent, we started the show talking about how politicized Supreme Court justices are. How in the, we've, we've in the past, we've talked oh, about our gerrymandering. Current system, we can. Like we have a real problem with gerrymandering. We can't mm-hmm. figure that out. Mm-hmm. I, I have very little faith that the government would do a better job of solving these problems yeah. than Facebook or Twitter or Google. I mean, I think this is a real test for Facebook and, and Twitter, whether they can stop external audiences from manipulating mm-hmm. things. And so for me, I, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt before I bring in the deep look state. At, look at the, mm. the <laughs> wow. short-lived. Yeah, this is this is sort of astonishing. <laughs> Bill Muck, free marketeer. Yeah. Look at the, uh, the failure of, of Congress to try and regulate, even where they own the airwaves via the FCC, yeah. equal time for political parties. 
You can imagine them saying, Google, you have to make sure that five of the results are pro and five of the results are, you're right. Yeah. I, I can't think of a regulatory approach that won't make things worse rather than better. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know. Something needs to be done. I, I like, I, these are, I, I don't trust Nick's them. mad as hell and I he's not going to take I it anymore. I, I, I really, <laughs> realistically, I have not necessarily any personal experience or anything that has happened to me, but the way that this is starting to shake out and, and evolve really scares me. Yeah. These are things that are so just giant in scope and have such influence over society, over our society. And you can talk about Google and you can talk about Amazon that has just has its tentacles in everything. And, you know, and then you talk about Apple and, and mm -hmm. the evolution of the smartphone and the people's ability to live without that. And it's just, it's a very, it's a very concerning thing. I think Was something Google the second trillion done. dollar company this week? Oh, I, I didn't know. I, I, I feel like uh, Amazon, of course, was one. This is like the NFL, right? Yeah. The highest paid guy is only the highest paid guy Apple for a was day or first. two. Apple, I'm mm -hmm. sorry. And uh, yet another has crossed that big threshold. It mm -hmm. may or may not be Google. I, Though, I mean, those so are, I'll stop on it. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Those, are, those are giant governments. Giant M governments. Most than, yes. than a, a, a large group of very advanced um, industrialized countries. That. Mm -hmm. That says something, that something needs to be done. You can't have a corporate entity that has that much power and influence without something being done. This is so interesting to see I you making know. this argument. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're, we're an hour ten. I'm almost speechless. Yeah. So we, <laughs> we've, got, we've got three topics, but we probably only have time for one. So I'm going to throw it to Tom. So we've got Trump fought the law and the law won, or two cheers for Trump on Mexican trade deals, or they're microwaving our, nip, uh, our diplomats. Yeah. Tom, which, yeah. which would you prefer well, to talk about? Well, I take Trump law, uh, fought the law. I mean, mm -hmm. That one's going to be dated by the next time we talk. Sure. I, I'm thinking NAFTA's going to be around for a while, given Canada's continued... Uh, and and since yes. brain damage is permanent, you can always come back to the microwave <laughs> diplomat. This is perfect. This is good because I'm I'm excited to hear your take on this too. So last week we discussed the ways in which the president is attacking the legal system. He's attacked his attorney general, stating that he know uh, general general stated that he knows a lot of flippers and that flipping ought to be illegal. He's floated the idea of a pardon for Paul Manafort and suggested that the Justice Department should focus its attention on Democrats and in particular Hillary Clinton. Then on Monday, he directly attacked Sessions over bringing charges against Republican congressmen so close to the midterm. He was referring to California uh, Representative Duncan Hunter and New York Representative Chris Collins, both of uh, Republicans who are currently facing charges. At face value, he appears to be linking the prosecution of crimes to his political interest. Tom, like the other topics, I'm dying to hear how someone who is so loves his Constitution. I do. Uh, and the idea of nobody being above the law is reacting to these developments. Am I, am, I'm deeply troubled and worried. Should I be? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love my Constitution, yeah. my beloved Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have a couple thoughts on this one. The first one is uh, there's a second sort of first principle for me. You know, one of them you have in your intro, and that's nobody's above the law. And a, and a corollary to that is equal justice under the law. And I think one of the things that people are worried about right now is a Department of Justice that has been politicized to a degree that some people worry about whether it is dispensing uh, equal justice. Uh, I don't have any problem with indicting people who have committed crimes the night before they go on trial. I realize yeah. that's not generally DOJ policy, but if you've committed a crime and the evidence is sufficient to get an indictment, we should not treat politicians, I think, differently than we treat me. Yeah. 
the problem is I think we've got a, an environment right now where people really do believe uh, that the Mueller investigation and, and the, the many ways it has spun in other directions from Russia, sure. but has not spun towards Hillary Clinton, has not spun towards others that have done similar th fusion GPS and some of those, that we're not dispensing equal justice. Uh, I'm not making an argument that that's true. I'm just identifying perception. that there's a, there's, a, there's a perception problem yeah. here, and justice has to do something to cure that, it seems to me. Um, Second, uh, I, well, in all of these legal contexts, I am worried that politics is trumping constitutional, uh, constitutionalism. Um, I, I don't want to doubt that a person is indicting people to keep them out of office, right? I guess I don't want to suggest is a better way of putting it. At the same time, we have watched a debasement of our political entities and, and organs in such a way that I can imagine somebody thinking that. And I'm sure that those who are watching uh, uh, conservative news and hearing sort of the drumbeat of Bruce Orr and Michael Steele, or not Michael Steele, uh, Steele, Christopher, Christopher Steele, Steele, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, uh, have in their mind that DOJ is part of the same group that wrote the editorial in The Times, which is part of the same group that helped Bob Woodward. Uh, I'm not arguing they are. I'm saying that we are really it fits in, in a dire mm -hmm. scenario where enough Americans believe that, that they stop trusting government. Uh, yeah. And I think a lot don't. And what makes it especially complicating is that the DOJ can't come out and defend themselves the way that Trump can attack the Department of Justice. So Bob Mueller or whoever it is, whoever, you know, they can't come out and make the case that what they're doing is legitimate or they don't, right? I mean, they don't, they don't engage in a public discourse in the way that politicians can. Yeah, it would be immensely difficult. Uh, there are certainly spokespersons yeah. there who will talk about the merits of an indictment or something like that. Yeah, Rosenstein uh, comes out every uh, once in a yeah, while. Yeah. Yeah. But, but so much of, uh, they can't say what they can't say, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. right? So they can't say, well, we didn't indict so-and-so because we don't know who so-and-so is. Right. Um, uh, but it seems to me that they could in, in uh, for example, the Clinton, there could be explanations sure. issued that are more robust and plausible uh, for why it would be that there has not been Department of Justice attention to some of the things that I think people regard as equally troubling, um, as that sure. sort of Manafort kind of things. There's been virtually no prosecution under some of the statutes that have been used against Flynn and Manafort registering foreign agents. And let's just say Fusion GPS, as I understand it, was lobbying. Mm -hmm. they not, they're not registered. Um, it feels like the talk of conservative radio, but there's a theme there that I think isn't unimportant, and it is, is, is justice being equally uh, distributed here? And, and maybe the answer is it is. You're right, it's difficult to defend. But I do think there's some legitimate questions about whether or not justice is equally aggressively pursuing all crimes uh, uh, that they could. And maybe in this hyper-partisan environment, mm -hmm. breaking DOJ policy of talking about why they haven't mm -hmm. pursued certain investigations, particularly Clinton, mm -hmm. uh, that may be helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, no, I, I, I am sympathetic to that argument because I'm, I'm deeply troubled 
by this attack by the president. I think the SMR. president mm -hmm. is motivated by political ambitions. Yeah. But my understanding, when you talk to these, you know, the, the attorneys that are doing this work, I mean, they they, they are motivated by higher ideals uh, of going after bad guys. Right? I mean, that's kind of the it's a simplistic analogy, but uh, I don't know. I I think this moves us in a really problematic in some ways, direction. It's a little like Google, though, uh, in the sense that uh, no one can divorce themselves. We talk about implicit biases, right? Well, no one can can divorce themselves from their political leanings any more than they can all of those other things entirely. Mm -hmm. You can certainly make a conscious judgment that you're going to distribute justice equally and you're going to pursue all potential indictments with the same level of aggressiveness. Whether that actually in practice happens, I, I'm not sure. I don't know. I, I don't want to yeah. question people's no. motives or judgments, but uh, there is certainly a narrative that we need to attend to. And because justice, Department of Justice, yes. think about that name yeah. for a minute. If people don't trust that, oh boy, it's one thing not to trust the EPA. Mm -hmm. It's one thing not to trust the FCC. It's an entirely different thing not to uh, to trust justice. Yes, mm -hmm. it's it's central to a democracy. Is mm -hmm. that that the, there's nobody above mm -hmm. the law? And as we undermine people's trust in the Supreme Court by saying egregiously un uh, untrue things about nominees, that's part of of this same picture. So so. The average person watching these hearings says, well, well, God, I can't trust the Supreme Court because this guy's never going to make an honest decision. I can't trust justice because they're never going to make an honest decision. I can't trust the FBI. Who do I trust? This is this is a big deal. This is <laughs> this. This is what happens in dictatorships where yeah. you have one side yeah. wins and then they're toppled and then the other side becomes the oppressor. Yeah. Because who do you trust? Mm -hmm. Your side. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, no, I, I completely agree. And I'm. I'm terribly worried that the Supreme Court becomes mm -hmm. Congress in terms of the perception of, of yeah. being a political actor. And it's, it, it's always been the most trusted yes. branch by a long shot. But, but that number's come down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Congress did it, not the court, yeah. I'd argue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I realize there's going to be differences of opinion on that. But I'd argue that the way they have treated this nomination process repeatedly, Republicans and Democrats here, um, that is what has diminished the court in the public's eye not decisions the court has made this, agreed this, this has been good nick it's been good we should wrap up <laughs> we should this was this was a fun one though. it was a good one all right <clears throat> um yeah standard stuff um if you guys like the podcast like i said at the beginning um have questions comments anything like that beer suggestions follow us on twitter at barstool paul facebook at barstool politics uh, download the Untapped app on iOS and Android for uh, check out the beers that we try. We're just Barstool Politics on there. Uh, podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Play Music, uh, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, iTunes, definitely. That's where most of you guys are. Uh, review us on there. Share us through there. Um, that helps us tremendously. Uh, also, uh, definitely checked out Predict It, which if you miss it at the beginning of the podcast, it's pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. It's super fun and very easy to use. Uh, use the promo code that we have, uh, predictit.org slash promo slash barstoolpaul20. Uh, if you uh, open a $20 account, they will match your deposit up to $20. So $40 total dollars if great. you do it. Yeah, it's great. You I'm betting all 40 of mine that Bill Muckle never make another <laughs> anti-regulatory <laughs> argument. All my, I'm going all bet. in on that one. <laughs> <laughs> and that Nick will never make another pro-regulatory <laughs> argument. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Tom, thank you as always for being here. Oh, always see fun you soon. It's a joy. Yeah. Uh, anything else that we missed? We're good. Awesome. We will see you guys next week. And Cheers. Phil will be back. Right? Yes. I'll, I'll, I'll feed her saying. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Cheers, guys. Bye.